0: Section 10 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Henrietta Maria, Chapter 3, Part 2. Queen Henrietta manifested, at an early period of her sojourn in France, an extreme desire to unite her niece, Mademoiselle de Montpensier, to her son, the Prince of Wales, Mademoiselle de Montpensier was not only of suitable rank, being the first princess in France, the daughter of the favorite brother of Henrietta, but likewise the greatest heiress in Europe. Her portraits at Versailles and Eau show that she had no little beauty, and her memoirs that she had wit sufficient to encourage her in her vanity and presumption. Gaston of Orleans father of this fantastic royal beauty, was poor, considering his high rank as the first prince of the blood. All his first wife's vast possessions, as heiress of Montpensier and Dombey had passed to his daughter, and he was often dependent on her for funds when she was a very young woman, and this position inflated her intolerable self-esteem. She took pleasure in mortifying her aunt, Queen Henrietta, whenever she opened the subject of her union with the Prince of Wales." It is evident that she suspected him of indifference to her charms and advantages, for she never mentions the matter without apparent pique. Although I had, she observes, been sufficiently informed of the wishes of my aunt, the Queen of England, when we were together at Fontainebleau, yet I seem not to give the slightest credence to a second declaration the Prince of Wales made me, through Madame d'Epernon, who was the friend of the English royal family, The first offer of the Prince of Wales, as I said, was made me by the Queen his mother. I really know not, if he had spoken himself, whether he might have succeeded, but I am sure I could not set great account on what I was told in behalf of a lover who had nothing to say for himself. Afterwards she consoles her pride by the reflection that young Charles had nothing to say for himself because he could not utter an intelligible sentence in French yet she considered that he ought to have obtained proficiency on purpose. Thus, La Grande Mademoiselle remained indignant that he only courted her through the agency of the tender and flattering speeches made by his royal mother. I noted nevertheless, says the literary princess, that whenever I went to see Queen Henrietta, her son always placed himself near me. He always led me to my coach. Nothing could induce him to put on his hat in my presence. He never put it on till I quitted him, and his regard for me manifested itself a hundred ways in little matters. One day, when I was going to a grand assembly, given by Madame de Croissy, the Queen of England would dress me and arrange my hair herself. She came to this purpose to my apartments, and took the utmost pains to set me off to the best advantage, and the Prince of Wales held the flambeau near me to light my toilette the whole time." What an extraordinary historical group here presents itself. The artists of the day could draw nothing but the fond subject of Venus, attired by the graces. Here, to the mind's eye, rises the elegant figure of the royal Henrietta, dressing her beautiful and spiritual niece, then in the first splendor of her charms. And in contrast to their beauty was the dark Spanish-looking boy, standing by with the flambeau. First cousins, it is true, have privileges, "'Charles was not more than fifteen, but yet too old for an attendant Cupidon. "'I wore black, white, and carnation,' pursues this literary princess. "'My paru of precious stones was fastened by ribbons of these colors. "'I wore also a plume of the same kind. "'All had been fancied and ordered by my aunt, the Queen of England, "'the Queen Regent, that is, Anne of Austria.' who knew by whose hands I was adorned, sent for me to come to her before I went to the ball. Therefore, the Prince of Wales had an opportunity of arriving at the Hotel de Croisie before me, and I found him there, at the Port Cochères, ready to hand me from my coach. I stopped in a chamber to readjust my hair at a mirror, and the Prince of Wales again held the flambeau for me, and this time he brought his cousin, Prince Robert, or Rupert, as an interpreter between us, for believe it who will, though he could understand every word I said to him, he could not reply to me the least sentence in French. When the ball was finished, we retired. The Prince of Wales followed me to the porter's lodge of my hotel, and lingered till I entered, and then went his way. His gallantry was pushed so far, that it made a great noise in the world that winter, and was much manifested at a feat, celebrated at the Palais Royal, where there was played a magnificent Italian comedy, embellished with machinery and music, followed by a ball. And again my aunt, the Queen of England, would dress me with her own hands. It had taken three entire days to arrange my ornaments. My robe was all figured with diamonds, with carnation trimmings. I wore the jewels of the Crown of France, and to add to them, the Queen of England lent me some very fine ones, which at that time she had not yet sold. She said not a little on the fine turn of my shape, my good mien, my fairness, the brightness of my light hair. She was placed on a throne in the middle of the ballroom, and the young king of France and the prince of Wales seated themselves at her feet. I felt not the least embarrassment, as this modest damsel. But as I had an idea of marrying the emperor, I regarded the prince of Wales as an object of pity. In the course of this egotist memoirs, she marks with contempt the increasing poverty of her aunt, Queen Henrietta, the plainness of her attire, the humility of her equipage, as she gradually parted with every diamond and glittering thing, the remnants of her former splendor, which, together with the liberal allowance, she derived from the French government, she sacrificed to her conjugal affection as the fortunes of her royal lord grew darker and darker. Queen Henrietta was induced to persuade him to abandon the Episcopal Church in England in hopes of restoration and peace. The agents who undertook to inform the king of her wishes in this matter certainly gave him great pain and displeasure. These were Belvire, the French ambassador, who arrived at Newcastle in 1646 on this errand from his court, and Sir William Devenant, who was sent by the queen direct from Paris, to tell the king, that all his friends there advised his compliance. The king observed, that he had no friends there who knew aught of the subject. There is Lord German, replied Devenant. German knows nothing of ecclesiastical affairs, said the king. Lord Culpepper is of the same opinion. Culpepper has no religion whatever, returned the king. What does Hyde think of it? We do not know, please, your majesty, answered Devenant. The chancellor has forsaken the prince, having remained in Jersey instead of accompanying him to the queen, and her majesty is much offended with him. My wife is in the wrong. Hyde is an honest man, who will never forsake me or the church, rejoined the king. I wish he were with my son. Devenant proceeded to mention, That the queen had resolved, if her opinion was not taken, to retire into a convent and never to see the king again. An intimation which gave the severest pangs to the heart of her husband, who drove the negotiator from his presence, which he never permitted him to enter again. The king remonstrated with the queen on her avowed intention of deserting him, which she passionately denied, and it is supposed that Devenant had dared to threaten the king With some of the idle gossip he had gathered in her majesty's household in Paris. Notwithstanding this sharp trial of his dearest affections, Charles stood firm, and the church owes the preservation of the remainder of her property to his honesty and justice, and the grand object of the rebels of dividing her spoils among the strongest and devouring them like the abbey lands, met with no legal sanction. The vast access of despotism, attained by Henry the Eighth in a similar case, seems to have offered no inducements to Charles I. Had he really been a tyrant, would he not have followed such an example with impunity, and taking the opportunity not only of relieving his pecuniary distress, but of throwing rich sops to the new set of upstarts greedy for prey? No part of the sad pilgrimage of the unfortunate monarch was more afflicting to him than his sojourn at Newcastle, yet the great body of the people always treated him with respect and affection. A little circumstance that occurred to him, when at church in that town, he often repeated with pleasure. In the course of the service, the clerk gave out a psalm, chosen with a facetious tendency. "'Why boastest thou, thou tyrant, thy wicked works abroad?' The king arose and forbade it, and gave out the commencement of the 46th psalm. Have mercy, Lord, on me, for men would me devour. The whole congregation joined with the head of the church in his amendment, and sang the psalm, which is indeed the most applicable in his case. In the course of the year 1646, the queen had the pleasure of welcoming to her arms her little daughter, Henrietta, whom she had left an infant of but a fortnight old at Exeter. The escape of the babe from the power of the parliament was effected by Lady Morton, her governess. This young lady was one of the beautiful race of Villiers, a great favorite of the queen, whose favor she certainly deserved by her courageous fidelity, both in attending her to Exeter in the worst of her troubles, taking care of her infant and ultimately bringing it safely to her. Lady Morton had been permitted by the Parliamentary Army to retire with the infant princess from Exeter to the nursery palace at Oatlands. The year after, when all royal expenses were cashiered and the Parliament meditated taking the child to transfer it with its brothers and sisters to the custody of the Earl and Countess of Northumberland, Lady Morton resolved only to surrender this little one to the Queen from whom she had received her. Père Cyprian Gamache, who was afterwards the tutor of the princess, details the story of the escape, and the simple man seems to believe, in his enthusiasm, that Providence had ordained all the troubles of King Charles in order that his youngest daughter might be brought up a Roman Catholic. Queen Henrietta, he says, separated from her husband and children, living in loneliness of heart at the Louvre, had thought intensely of this babe, and earnestly desiring her restoration, had vowed that if she was ever reunited to her, that she would rear her in her own religion. Can a mother forget her child? repeats Père Gamache. A hundred times each day did the thoughts of the bereaved queen recur to her little infant, as many times did her prayers, accompanied with maternal tears, ask her of God, nor did he refuse the just request. In fact, it was clearly his will that the infant should be restored to the mother, and in bringing it to pass, he caused feminine weakness to triumph over all the powers of the English Parliament. His goodness inspired the Countess of Morton to divest herself of her rich robes and noble ornaments, to assume the garb of poverty, and disguise herself as the wife of a poor French servant, little better than a beggar. She likewise dressed the infant princess in rags like a beggar boy, and called her Pierre, that name being somewhat like the sound, by which the little creature meant to call herself princess, if she was asked her name. Lady Morton was tall and elegantly formed, and it was no easy matter to disguise the noble air and graceful port of the Villiers' beauty. She, however, fitted herself a hump with a bundle of linen. She walked with the little princess on her back in this disguise, nearly to Dover, giving out that she was her little boy. Subsequently, Lady Morton declared that she was at the same time alarmed and amused at the indignation of the royal infant at her rags and mean appearance, and at the pertinacity with which she strove to inform every person she passed on the road, that she was not a beggar boy and Pierre, but the little princess. Fortunately for the infant Henrietta, no one understood her babblings but her affectionate guardian. Lady Morton had arranged all things so judiciously that she crossed the sea from Dover to Calais in the common packet boat without awakening the least suspicion. When once on the French territory, the royal child was no longer Pierre but princess and Lady Morton made the best of her way to the Queen at Paris. Oh, the joy of that meeting, exclaims Père Cyprian. Oh, the consolation to the heart of the mother, when her little one, who was lost, was found again. How many times we saw her clasp her round the neck, kiss her and kiss her over again. The queen called this princess the child of benediction, and resolved to rear her in the Roman Catholic faith. In fact, as soon as the first sparks of reason began to appear in the mind of this precious child, her majesty honored me by the command of instructing her. Lady Morton's successful adventure caused a great deal of conversation at Paris, and Edmund Waller, who had previously celebrated her as a leading beauty at the Court of England, made her the heroine of another poem, in which he lauded her fidelity to her royal mistress. In one of his couplets, which we do not quote as the best of his strains, he alludes to Lady Morton's stratagem thus. The faultless nymph, changing her faultless shape, becomes unhandsome, handsomely to scape. This poem was presented to Queen Henrietta Maria at the Louvre on New Year's Day, 1647. The little princess, who was born in so much peril and preserved amidst adventures more romantic than any invented by writers of fiction, was received by her royal mother as a consolation sent by heaven for her troubles. The mother and child, thus wonderfully reunited, were never separated for any length of time again, The sad queen seems to have centered her warmest maternal affection in this youngest and fairest of her offspring. The parliamentary war broke out in Paris in the first days of the year, 1648. It is well known in history as the War of the Fronde. It raged for about 18 months. Henrietta Maria, enlightened by sad experience, thus early in the struggle, warned her sister-in-law how to avert the coming storm. Few persons, however, take any warning, except by their own personal suffering, and the War of the Fronde, which broke out on the 7th of January, 1648, with a stormy meeting of the merchants of Paris to resist a heavy illegal house tax, had assumed a very alarming character in the course of that spring. The people took advantage of the minority of the king, the discontents of the princes of the blood. And the successes of the English Parliament in a far worse cause to demand rights which had been gradually extinguished since the death of their beloved Henri. Cott, Henrietta Maria took a just and sensible view of the grievances of her native country, a view well becoming of her father's daughter. She subsequently employed her influence in negotiating a peace with the princes of the House of Condé, who were the leaders of the popular party. While this national convulsion was progressing towards its crisis, Henrietta Maria resided either at the Louvre or at Saint-Germain. She continued to be highly respected by the French court. She was invited to stand godmother to the Petit Monsieur of France, who was given the name of Philippe at his confirmation on the 11th of May, 1648. Two or three days afterwards, the news arrived that her second son, James, Duke of York, had made his escape from his imprisonment at St. James's Palace by one of those romantic series of adventures, which seemed to pertain to every sovereign who bore the name of Stuart. The Queen had written to him from France, charging him to effect his escape, if possible. But this design was suspected by the authorities, paramount in the kingdom, and his governor was threatened with committal to the tower, if he were detected in any such design." In one of those interviews, with his royal father, which were sometimes permitted, the young prince obtained the consent and approbation of his majesty. He retained the secret closely in his own bosom for an entire year, without finding an opportunity of confiding it to any anyone, but as he declared, the idea never left him night or day. The queen was in constant correspondence with agents in England, to effect the escape of James, The chief difficulty was that he had given a promise to the Earl of Northumberland that he would not receive any letters whatsoever without his knowledge. So strictly did the young boy keep his promise that as he was going into the tennis court in St. James's palace, a person whom he knew to be perfectly faithful offered to slip a letter into his hand saying softly to him, it is from the queen. James answered, I must keep my promise and for that reason I cannot receive it. As he spoke thus, he passed onward, so that no notice was taken of the colloquy. This incident was told to the Queen at Paris, who was much displeased, and said angrily, What can James mean by refusing a letter from me? He afterwards explained to her in Paris that his boyish honor was pledged, and the Queen declared that she was satisfied. For the present, the royal boy remained on board that portion of the English fleet, which had forsaken Cromwell, and taken refuge at Helvote He hoisted his flag there as Lord Admiral, and as the English sailors were much encouraged by his presence, Queen Henrietta gave him leave to continue on board, and his brother, the Prince of Wales, prepared to leave France to join him there. In this year, observes Madame de Motville, a terrible star reigned against kings. On the 14th of July, 1648, Mademoiselle de Beaumont and I went to see the Queen Henrietta, who had retired to the convent of the Carmelites in order to compose her mind after the anguish she had endured in parting with her son, the Prince of Wales, who had departed to take the command of the English ships, which were at the time lying at Helvote sloughs. We found the queen alone in a little chamber, writing and closing up dispatches, which she assured us, after she had finished them, were of the greatest importance. She then communicated to us the great apprehensions she felt regarding the success of her son's undertaking. She confided to us her present state of pecuniary distress, which originated in the destitution of the queen region of France, the civil war of the Fronde, having disorganized all the resources of government." Queen Henrietta showed us a little gold cup, out of which she drank, and protested that she had not another piece of gold, coin or otherwise, in her possession. She told us with tears, that her misery in parting with her son was much aggravated by the fact that all his people came to her, demanding payment of their salaries, and had told her at his departure, that if she could not pay them, they must quit his service, but, she added, that she had the grief of finding it impossible to relieve their wants, knowing at the same time, how real they were. Queen Henrietta then mentioned with anguish, how much worse the officers of her mother had behaved, when that queen was resident, at the beginning of the civil war in England, and thus did justice to the superior manliness and endurance of the English Cavaliers, with whom, nevertheless, she was the most unpopular woman in the world. We could not but marvel, continued Madame de Motville, at the evil influence which dominated at this juncture over the crowned heads who were then the victims of the parliaments of France and of England. Though ours was, thanks to God, very different to the other in their intentions, and different also in their effects, yet to all appearances, the future lowered dark enough. During the dreadful days of the first battle of the barricades and that of the gate of Saint Antony, Henrietta came from her peaceful residence at Saint-Germain's and sojourned with her royal sister-in-law at Paris, sharing her hopes and fears and supporting her by her presence. As yet, she had not herself lost all hope of the restoration of the king, her husband. The time now drew near that was to show how dismally that hope was to be blighted. It was at the alarming juncture, when the royal family of France were finally driven from Paris by the Fronde, that Queen Henrietta courageously exchanged her residence at saint Germain's and laye for the Louvre. Her niece, Mademoiselle de Montpensier, marks this fact and observes, it was when the Prince of Wales went to Holland. This was in the summer of 1648. Public affairs assumed at this period, so dangerous an aspect in Paris, that the regent queen, Anne of Austria, thought it best to strengthen herself in the chateau of Saint-Germain's. Modern policy has been wholly regardless of the commanding station of that fortress, but it is formed by nature and in ancient times was ever used as a bridle on Paris. Its bold range of cliffs, following the windings of the Seine in front, its flank guarded by a dense forest of thirty miles, might be forgotten by the Bourbons in the 18th and 19th centuries, but not by the warriors who could remember the wars of Henri Cotte. When at Saint-Germain's, observed Marie de' Medici to Bazin-Pierre. I seem to have one foot in Paris. In fact, Anne of Austria and her court retired to this fortified ridge, which those familiar with the scene are aware, commands a view of one long arm of Paris, The royal army occupied the plain below, between the metropolis and the Seine. Queen Henrietta, who was much beloved by the Conde family and had a great influence with them, came to the Louvre for the real purpose of undertaking the office of mediatrix between the people and the Regent Queen, an office which, after many troubles and deprivations, she subsequently successfully accomplished. Much was, however, to be done and suffered before either party would listen to the suggestions of peace and reason, and to the representations of Henrietta's dearly bought experience. The Siege of Paris and the War of the Fronde darkened the close of the year 1648. Henrietta was beleaguered in the Louvre by the Parisian faction of the Frondeurs, and Paris was at the same time besieged by the Queen Regent, her sister-in-law, from saint germains and zenlais Queen Henrietta passed the inclement and dismal Christmas of 1648 with a reduced household, shut up in the vast edifice of the Louvre. Her thoughts divided between the civil war around her and the distant and darker prospect of affairs in England. The besieged state of Paris often obstructed the passage of the couriers who brought her dispatches from her unfortunate husband, and thus her misery was tantalized by suspense. Cardinal de Retz, the principal leader of the Fronde, paid a visit of inquiry on the 6th of January, to learn what had become of the desolate Queen of England, after a series of furious skirmishes and slaughters, which had convulsed Paris during the days immediately preceding the 6th of January. It was well that he had not forgotten her, for her last loaf was eaten, and her last fagot had been consumed, and she was destitute of the means of purchasing more. The cardinal, who was one of the leading spirits of his age, was a friend of the queen. He found her without any fire, though the snow was falling dismally. She was sitting by the bedside of her little daughter, the princess Henrietta. It was noon, but the child was still in bed. "'You find me,' said the queen calmly. "'Keeping company with my Henrietta, I would not let the poor child rise today, for we have no fire.' The princess was but four years old when she was thus sharing with her mother the extremes of destitution. The Cardinal sent Queen Henrietta assistance immediately from his own resources, which she accepted thankfully. The same day he flew to the Parliament of Paris, with which he was all-powerful and represented, with a burst of passionate eloquence, the dire distress to which the daughter of their Henri Cotte was reduced. They instantly voted her a subsidy of 20,000 livres. What was the occupation of the sad queen in her desolate watch by her little child? The date of the following letter, long hid among the archives of Russia, most touchingly proves. What pathos in a date? exclaims one of our poets. We find it so, indeed, in many a historical coincidence. On this 6th of January, when the providential visit of de Retz possibly saved Queen Henrietta and her little one from perishing by destitution, she had received the heart-rending tidings that the military terrorists in London were about to institute a tribunal to sentence the king, her husband, and her occupation on that eventful day was writing the following letter to the French ambassador in London, Count de Grignan, entreating to be permitted to come to London and share her husband's destiny. Henrietta Maria to Monsieur de Grignan, ambassador from Louis Thirteenth to England. Monsieur de Grignan, the state to which the king, my lord, finds himself reduced, will not let me expect to see him by the means he heretofore hoped. It is this that has brought me to the resolution of demanding of the two chambers, that is both houses of parliament, and the general of their army, passports to go to see him in England. You will receive orders from Monsieur le Cardinal, that is Mazarin to do all that I entreat of you for this expedition, which will be to deliver the letters which I send you herewith, according to their address. I have specified nothing to the parliaments and to the general, but to give me the liberty to go see the king, my lord, and I refer them to you, to tell them all I would say more particularly." You must know, then, that you are to ask passports for me to go there, to stay as long as they will permit me, and to be at liberty all the time I may be there, and likewise all my people, in regard to whom it will be necessary to say that I will send a list of those that I wish shall attend me, in order that if there are any in the number of them that may be suspected or obnoxious, they may be left behind." There are letters for the speakers of both houses, and for the general Fairfax. You will see all these persons, and let me know in what manner they receive the matter, and how you will find them disposed to satisfy this wish. I dare not promise myself that they will accord me the liberty of going. I wish it too much to assure myself of it, at a time when so little of what I desire succeeds. But if, by your negotiation, these passports can be obtained, I shall deem myself obliged to you all my life, as I shall, whatever may happen, for all the care you have taken, of which make no doubt. I shall add no more, except to assure you that I am, Monsieur de Grenon, most truly, your very good friend, Henriette Maria R. From the Louvre, this 6th of January, 1649. About the same time, probably on the same day, she wrote to her husband, by one Wheeler, an agent of Major Boswell, expressing her deep sense of sorrow for his condition, adding, That with all his afflictions she bears an equal share, and that she wished to die for him, or at least with him, nor can she live without hopes of being restored to him, for whom she hath done, and will do her utmost in all possible ways, and still trusts to help him. She likewise wrote a letter endorsed to your trusty and well-beloved Thomas, Lord Fairfax, general, desiring his assistance that she might see the king, her husband, before he be proceeded against by any trial and to have a pass for her secure coming and returning. Which letter was delivered by the French ambassador to General Fairfax and being sent by him to the House of Commons was thrown aside with the mere remark that the house had in 1643, voted her majesty guilty of high treason. Before Henrietta accepted the aid of the Parliament of Paris, she had sent an account of her extreme destitution to the queen Regent of France, then at Saint-Germain, and craved some present relief in order to procure food for herself and her servants. Anne of Austria answered, that the destitution was equal in her own household, for neither she nor the king had a sou and that she had neither credit to obtain a dinner or a gown. Sometimes when Paris was more than usually tumultuous, the household servants of Queen Henrietta, who had dispersed themselves in various directions in search of food, rallied round her, either to protect her or to be protected by the defenses of the Louvre, and sometimes the royalist nobility left in the French metropolis came thither for shelter. Madame de Motteville had frequent interviews with the queen on these occasions. Hither, exclaims this writer, with eloquence, which draws its grandeur from the power of truth. Hither should the great of the earth have come, they who deem themselves destined to a permanent puissance, they who imagine their magnificence, their pleasures and their apparent glory will never cease. Here they should have come to meditate, and to be undeceived in their false opinions. The destitution of this royal lady was distressing, was afflicting enough, yet she told me it was light, In comparison with the apprehension that laid on her heart of the calamity which was to come, but it was the will of God that she should feel the difference between the greatest prosperity and the greatest misery that can happen in this life. It may be truly said that she experienced these two states in their extremes. Yet the queen's ever-sanguine temperament gave a certain buoyancy to her manners in the daytime. It was in the silent watches of the night that her full heart was relieved by tears. The English newspapers of the day contrived, notwithstanding the siege of Paris, to obtain accurate knowledge of the real state of her feelings. The queen, they said, is returned from her devotions in the house of the Carmelites, where she hath been for divers days. She seems not dejected at the state of her husband in England, yet her ladies declare that her nights are more sad than usual. A dead pause and cessation of intelligence had occurred since Queen Henrietta had dispatched to London the letters that had been recently quoted. No information whatsoever of all that was going on there had reached her during the principal part of January and February, 1649 the civil strife in and around Paris, had stopped the access of all couriers and letters to the Louvre. In this agonizing state of suspense, we must leave our queen, and trace the consummation of that great tragedy in England, the dim forebodings of which, she said, so heavily oppressed her heart. End of section 10